What is up, family? It's Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise a Doctor and the author of Pre-Med Mondays. Both books are available on Amazon.com, so you can grab your copy there. Very excited about today's guest. Um, very, very esteemed gentleman, I should say. It's Dr. Andre Campbell. Now, a lot of you guys will hear that name and it might click. You might think, where have I heard that name? And I'll tell you where you heard that name. You heard that name when the YouTube shooting happened. So it happened in the summer of 2018, this past summer. And Dr. Andre Campbell was the trauma surgeon who was the main one on the screens, the main one directing the show and making sure everybody was okay in that situation. He stepped up and he did a phenomenal job being a leader. And I tell you, as a black male physician and black male in general, just a member of the medical society in general, I was very proud of the way he handled that. And um, I'm, I'm excited to have him on the show. I'm very honored and humbled to have him on the show. So you're going to learn a lot from Dr. Andre Campbell. And I want you guys to really enjoy, listen to what he says. He's going to tell you his, his story, his life story. He's going to take it way back to childhood and give you guys a real glimpse as to what it takes to develop a man, a physician of his stature. And I think that's just amazing. As a young physician who is also in academic medicine, the same as Dr. Campbell, it means a lot to me to actually hear her story. So I'm inspired by it. And I hope that you guys too will be inspired by it. All right. Before we get into it, I'm going to do my same reminders. I always do. Please subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us out when you guys subscribe. It helps with the ratings and of course helps us get them out so more people can hear it. Also share it, share it with your friends. Just click that share button on Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever you're listening to, and just help us get the word out so more people know about black men and white coats so we can actually achieve our mission of getting more diversity, but specifically more black men into the field of medicine. And as always, please do remember February 16th, 2019, we'll be hosting the Black Men and White Coats Teen Summit in Dallas, Fort Worth on the campus of UT Southwestern Medical Center. So we hope to see you guys there. Check out www.blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash summit to learn more about that. And as always, we'll have a worksheet associated with Dr. Campbell's episode. You can find that at blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash worksheets. Also, allow me to put out a special invitation to any black men in white coats. So we're looking for clinicians, scientists who have a great story to tell and really want to inspire and mentor the next generation. If you're interested in sharing your story here on our podcast, email us at podcast at blackmenandwhitecoats.org. That's podcast at blackmenandwhitecoats.org. We'd love to share your story and help inspire the next generation. All right. Now, the gentleman that you all are waiting to hear from, Dr. Andre Campbell. Check it out. Well, Dale, this is uh, truly an honor for me to come and talk to you in your podcast. Uh, I am just going to begin by saying who I am and what I do and just kind of talk a bit about my journey, and I'll do it in several different parts. My name is Dr. Andre Campbell. I am a professor at surgery at the University of California, San Francisco, currently also an attending trauma surgeon at uh, San Francisco General Hospital also now called the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, also director of the ICU. Um, I direct a surgical critical care and trauma fellowship. I'm also director of the third year required clerkship for medical students, and I've been a professor uh, there at University of California, San Francisco, uh, for uh, over uh, 20 years. Now, my journey starts out uh, really at a young age, and I'll talk about it in several different phases. First thing is, is talking to a medical student who is interested, or a pre-medical student, what do you need to do to get into medical school? And I'll talk a little bit about my journey, and then I'll talk about what it takes, what it took for me to do it, and how it really takes a village. That means that it takes many people helping you uh, from different directions. And the thing that occurred to me as I sort of thought about my career is that you can't do this alone. You cannot become a doctor um, on your own without um, help from many different ways. And help come, comes from different ways. The first thing is you have to have a interest in sciences and mathematics, and you have to excel in that. Uh, I started my journey towards sciences at a pretty young age. So what happened was as a, and when I started in, in the beginning of grade school, I had some challenges in school, but 
as I entered the fourth grade, I ended up with a teacher. She was an African-American teacher. Her name was Mira Walker. And what she did is she basically began to challenge me to be successful. Uh, she would never take uh, what would not be your best effort. And she would always say, you can do better. You can do better. And that nudging, the fact that she supported me through this, the fact that she knew that I could do better, really began to propel me towards what I needed uh, to be successful. And that is to begin to excel. So coming out of fourth grade in her class, I was then able to place at the at the higher end of the of the classes at the school I was at it in Queens. I grew up in Jamaica, Queens. I'm originally a New Yorker. People ask me where I'm from. I said I live in California, but I'm from New York City, and that's where I'm from, and I'll always be from New York. So I'm in Queens. Um, I end up getting into uh, more accelerated classes in, in high school, in junior high school, which is middle school now, intermediate school in New York. I ended up getting um, also a second teacher who basically exposed me to sciences, and that was, his name was Claude McMorris. Now, as I put together a lecture a couple of years ago, I actually checked with his family, and I found out that Claude McMorris died probably about five years ago or so. Uh, he was just an amazing person. He taught me seventh grade sciences, and he made it so much fun. He made it so that every time I would have science classes with him, it really became exciting. Turns out he is uh, from he was from the West Indies. He was Jamaican, and he really was really fantastic. Made me excited about um, um, sciences and how exciting it was, and so much so that my initial inclination was initially towards going into the area of uh, astrophysics because I kind of fell in love with the planets and watching the planets. I had a little telescope, and I would always look up in the sky all the time, and I had some other interests in other things, but it was clearly then when I started to settle if I'm interested in the science, and and at, at about 7th or 8th grade or so, I said, well, if I'm interested in sciences and I maybe want to help people, that maybe being a physician would be the best thing for me. So as I was going through, um, actually as I entered the 7th grade, I had a chance to accelerate or to go through a four-year high school experience, and I decided that instead of accelerating and skipping a grade at that point, that I would basically end up going through 7th, 8th grade, and I ended up in this class called Special Progress Enrichment Class. And and then I, from that point, I began to shoot for the stars. In New York City, there were a number of specialized high schools. Uh, one in particular that I was very enamored with was a place called Stuyvesant High School. At the time, and currently, you have to take an exam Again, and I took the exam for the specialized high school, and there was Stuyvesant Bronx Science. Uh, the time Hunter was just all women in Brooklyn Technical High School, and I got the highest score, and I had an option to go to all three places. And I decided, based on location, I would go to Stuyvesant High School now. But then meant is that I had to travel an hour and a, 20 minutes, hour and a half every day, two trains and a bus to get to school. Then I had to come home and study, and began a four-year journey for me uh, of pursuing sciences, getting involved in extracurriculars, high school athletics, including you know, track and field and football. Even though I really wanted to play basketball since it was my first love, but I could never make the team. But I ended up getting multiple varsity letters in track and in football and kind of fell in love with those sports and actually became pretty good at those sports too. About high school, as I continued to excel in the sciences and became interested in many different things, but I started hearing about special um, programs that actually could help me get into medicine. I became involved in this program called the Pre-Medical Research Educational Program, which ran from 1968 to 1988. And the whole goal of this program was to increase the number of minority physicians in the United States. It was run by a woman by the name of Alice Miller. Alice was at first my teacher, then became my friend. And um, over the period of the of the 16 to 17 years that I, that I got to know her, she was just an amazingly supportive person uh, to my career and the things that I wanted to do, as she was for about three or 4,000 other people around the United States. That group helped me begin to get exposure to medicine. I ended up volunteering in a hospital, doing some research in high school, getting exposed to research projects, and really getting exposed to African-American physicians who I had never met 
uh, first African-American physician I had met was my pediatrician. The second was orthopod, um, who took care of me when I had a, an injury in high school. And, and those were the only two people I had ever met in my whole life who were African-American and were doctors. But when I got into high school and I got involved in this program, I began to see that it was okay and that you can be a physician and you can look like me and be a physician. I also became involved in another church group when I was in high school, and that was called the Archbishop's Leadership Project. That was a project basically sponsored by the Catholic Church, even though I'm not Catholic. But what I had able to meet to help me with was to develop my communication skills, my knowledge about African American history, and help propel me towards being excellent in everything. The, the motto of the the Archbishop's Leadership Project is and was. Excellence and all, so I always helped me put my best foot forward, always do the best you possibly could. So as I went through high school and I came up in college, I wanted to go to the best school possible. And the place that I got involved with um, there was um, I kind of looked everywhere uh, for schools I applied to, multiple league schools, and I thought I would apply to between seven and ten schools. I applied to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Southwell, Haverford. University of Rochester, and um, so I got into all the schools I applied to, and I ended up getting down between Wesleyan and Harvard. Wesleyan because I knew a lot of folks who went to Wesleyan, and it was such a great place, and it has a great science program. And then Harvard because I knew people went to Harvard and, and thought that it would be a great experience. So I ended up going to Harvard because I liked the institution, and it was in a city, and I'm a city boy, so that's how I ended up at. Harvard. Harvard was a big challenge. Um, it really changed a lot. It challenged me every single day I was there uh, from the beginning. Um, it, I met a lot of people who were extremely talented, and I had a lot of talented people in my class, and it began to teach me that. It also humbled me, but it also taught me that you had to work hard to get what you wanted, and sometimes things may not work out what you want it to be, but you worked hard and by working hard, you're able then to to galvanize your, yourself and move forward in a positive direction. Had a lot of challenges in school. I had my father was ill. I had a number of things um, that were going on. I had actually worked throughout my whole um, college experience because I had work study because I was on a full scholarship um, from in, in, in from high school into college. So I had to work about 10, 15 hours a week on top of all the science classes as best I could. But as, as I went through my third and fourth year, um, because of some issues um, that I came up against, I decided that I would take an extra year off between college and medical school. During that time, um, I worked at uh, the pre-medical research and educational program as a counselor. I also lined up a job as a uh, doing research during that year so I could figure out what was going on in terms of medicine and explore my interest in research. So it turns out the person who was going to hire me found out that the day that I was, the day before I was supposed to get started, that I, there was no money for me. So therefore, I ended up uh, being a Harvard graduate with a BA degree in biology with no job. And then a couple of weeks later, after looking around, I found a job working at Boys Harbor, which is an inner city. Health Services Agency in East Harlem, and um, I ended up working there uh, part-time until I got a real job working at Columbia University Medical Center, then Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center as a research technician. During that time, I I took the MCATs again, so my first school wasn't great. Uh, I took it again, did better, um, and I basically concentrated on applying to schools. I applied to uh, 25 medical schools uh, during that year. Interviewed about 15 places, and I got into about seven or eight medical schools. The best school I got into was University of California, San Francisco. It was the farthest away. It's, I'm a New Yorker, and it was in California. Uh, funny that uh, when I was in high school, I thought about going to Stanford, but I never did because it was too far away. So I ended up packing my bag, leaving, and going to University of California, San Francisco, and that started my West Coast odyssey. It was exciting. It was thrilling. It was really challenging, and I had a great group of people that I went to medical school with. We had a group of about um, 12 of us who finished medical school together, were African-American, and there were some Latino folks in our class also. 
But I had a lot of challenges in medical school from the standpoint of trying to figure out where I want to be when I grew up. So the question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, that to me was a challenge because there were four areas that excited me. First thing I would talk about is what I ended up being as a surgeon. Um, I was interested in surgery because I had been exposed to surgeons through, through the years, and um, surgeons seemed like they had really exciting time doing things. But in medical school, I was not excited by the folks I met in surgery, but I was excited about the surgical problems. Second area I thought about was pediatrics. Um, my mother was a foster mother, and because of that, I was very excited about taking care of kids. So, and uh, but the problem was the parents drove me nuts, and as a parent now I know what that's like, driving me crazy because that's what I do with my doctors and my son. The next area I thought about was OBGYN. OBGYN is really a fun area of catching babies or delivering women or helping them deliver babies. It's just fantastic, young, healthy patients coming into the world. It was really exciting, but I thought that women should really run that specialty. So. Um, so it was between, then the third last one was medicine. Internal medicine, um, I liked the clinical problems and interest in thinking about them, but as it turns out, um, it was not as interventionalist as I like it to be. I wanted to be able to do something. But as it came down to it, I crossed out OB because I was more interested in um, taking care of, I thought that women really should take care of women patients, and I could not be in a situation where a woman says, I don't want you to take care of me because I'm a man and I had problems with that and I wanted to make sure that I um, got in the area where I really was excited about and I could take care of everybody. So I crossed OB off the list and I crossed PEDS off the list because of the parents. I love the, I love the kids. Then it left me medicine and surgery. So during my fourth year, I actually applied an internal medicine general surgery. Um, when I come back, I'll fill you in on, on how what happened uh, with my application to residency training program the first time. So now here I am. I'm, I've decided that I was going to be either a medicine doctor in internal medicine or a general surgeon. So um, what I did was something that I don't recommend any of you to do as someone applying to schools. First thing is that I essentially... Um, applied in both, which I don't recommend you to do. So one day I applied to surgery, and I wrote surgery essays, and I wrote medicine essays, and I interviewed them both. Turns out I interviewed about 15 places, eight surgery, eight um, internal medicine places, mostly in New York, because during the course of medical school, my father had passed, and I wanted to be close to my family. The heart disease which killed him um, was difficult on our family, and he died very suddenly from rheumatic heart disease. So um, here I am, I'm medicine, surgery, medicine, surgery, and what happened was I came under the influence of um, a physician who is really, really outstanding physician. His name was Dr. Lawrence Turney. Dr. Lawrence Turney was um, is a medicine doctor at UCSF, and he basically said, if you're not sure, you should do medicine because of the path of least resistance. So what I did is the night before the match, I crossed off my surgery applications, and then I just ranked medicine. As it turns out, um, I ranked UCSF first, and then I ranked Columbia second, and the rest of my programs I ranked in New York. And as it turns out, I ended up at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center as an intern in general internal medicine. So looking back at the thoughts at the time, I knew that uh, that this was a decision that I was torn up about, and I wasn't sure this was my final thing, but I decided I would go and I would throw myself into it and see what happens. So I packed my bag, drove cross-country, um, and moved to New York City. And I was living in Manhattan and working at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. Now, I still remember as an intern how scared I was. In fact, I was, I was totally afraid that I would kill somebody during my first night. So I look back, and then right now it's July, and I was thinking about July. I think about my first night of call in June, and how I stayed up all night, making sure everybody was okay. And finally, um, I got through it and I survived it. At the time, internal medicine was actually pretty hard. It's a little bit easier now, like most things are, because of the work hour restrictions. But we were either on call every third, or on call every other, or we were on call every fourth night the whole year. It was quite busy, quite challenging, um, but I ended up um, working as hard as I could. 
<clears throat> and getting through it. It was actually a pretty exciting year, and I still kept in the back of my mind, do you really want to be a surgeon? Do you want to be an internist? What do you want to be? So I survived my first year, and I thought about <coughs> reapplying to the match, but then I said, well, maybe I'll do another year and see what happens. What I began was a discussion with my professors at UCSF through my second year about um, being a surgeon. Every time I had a vacation, I'd always come back to San Francisco, talk to my professors, and then consult with them. At the same time, we began a discussion with um, one of my uh, professors, who was the vice chair of the department at the time, Dr. John Lindenbaum, and we basically began having a discussion about what do you want to be when I grew up. That went on through my second and my third year. So I entered my third year in medicine as one year turned into two, turned into three years. I had this still burning desire to be a surgeon. And uh, with the help of John Lindenbaum and my professors at the University of California, San Francisco, um, I ended up going back to the match. This time I applied to 10 programs. But then I actually, at the end, I did not. This is what I made, and this is another mistake I don't want you to do. So what happened was, after I applied to 10 programs, I interviewed it a bunch. Some of the experience I had was not great. Um, in fact, some people thought that they wouldn't take a chance on me, and a lot of places just said no. But I interviewed, and I went to see places, and maybe I went to some places I didn't want to be. So, so thinking through things, I just decided that I was going to rank three places, which I think is totally wrong. In fact, I was embarrassed that I did it after I did it, but I ranked Columbia. Actually, I ranked UCSF Columbia and then UCSF, the prelim program, which I thought was wrong. Looking back on it now, what that means is that there's a chance that I couldn't be talking to you now as a surgeon if I took a chance like that, and that was the wrong thing for it to do. And as a someone going through this at your step, I would not do that. I would rank. Right now, I tell my students, apply to 25 places, go to get 10 or 15 interviews, and then when you do that, then you figure out where you're going to be, and you want to be a categorical surgical resident. When I told my one of my mentors at Columbia, Dr. Ken Ford, what I did, he just looked at me and said, you did what? And he was just flabbergasted that I did that. So when I went to the match again, I applied, and it turns out I matched at Columbia for surgery. So it turns out the program director there, Dr. Thomas King, who became my mentor, my surgical father, he wanted to train an internist, and it was the first, it was the first one. He basically uh, took me into the program and molded me into a surgeon I am today. Entered the program as an intern. That's what I applied to. But when I ran into him about a month before, two months before, he said, "We apply as an intern, but you should basically become a second year resident." And what that meant is that is that I would have to jump from being a third year medical resident, where I was the king of the hill, an experienced surgeon, my medicine doctor, into into going into surgery, and that was hard. Um, but um, but I applied and actually got credit. I'll just mention a couple of things about my medical training. What will happen is, is you'll come up to a time where, where people, you will be tested by your patients and you will have to rise the occasion. Your patients want you to stand and deliver. That means that you must do the right thing no matter what. Right? You figure out what the right thing is and you try to do it. So I'll tell you an experience I had when I was a medical resident. Got beat up a lot during my first year. Second year, I ended up going to the ICU and being attending, uh, being, I'm sorry, being a, a second year surgical uh, medical resident. And a second year medical resident at Mickey one night, um, I ended up having a situation where four patients had cardiac arrest simultaneously. Now, that is pretty much unheard of that it went off simultaneously. And basically, I worked as hard as I could with two interns who were just really excellent. And we actually ended up saving all those people. Now, I saved those people, and um, what happened was, after that, nobody questioned how good I was as a doctor. They knew that I was good, and that really said that. So nobody ever questioned me. So that's the first thing. Stand and deliver for your patients. Second thing I'll just mention is that um, the, the chair of my department and I did not see the eye, eye to eye after I applied in surgery. I made a couple appointments to see him, and I did not make it until the match came through. And he basically heard from the chair of surgery that he, I was going into surgery. So when I went to talk to him, he really was upset. And he basically cursed me out. Um, it was really hard, but I got through it. And he actually didn't talk to me for a long time until I went on the wards. He had to talk to me. 
So the thing I found with that is that please be honest with your with your mentors and your teachers. He thought he was my mentor, but he really wasn't. Um, and I didn't have a great relationship with him, but I did have a great relationship with the vice chair, and I told him everything. But of course, I needed to get to him first, and I didn't. And I think that's something I learned from that experience. So I went into surgery. So here I am. I'm a surgical resident at Columbia. Now, what happened was because I didn't do my internship, I was missing about 80 to 100 cases. Didn't know how to tie a knot. Didn't know how to make an incision. Didn't know what to do. So, but I was a second-year resident, so I was supposed to know how to do something. Now, I could take care of sick patients, and that was easy. So, ICU stuff became easy for me because I always spent the first, I spent six months out of three years in the ICU or more at Columbia. So, I was very skilled taking care of ICU patients. So then I did that. Then um, afterwards, I ended up um, um, basically learning how to become a surgeon. It took me a number of years, but I could do 1,100, 1,200 cases. And I became a skilled surgeon. Now what happened was because I was taking care of trauma patients all the time, I became skilled taking care of disasters. And because of that, I gravitated into ICU medicine and basically surgical critical care and trauma. Right now, I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon. So with that, I basically then um, ended up um, applying to jobs all over the United States and told my wife I wanted to do more training, but she said no. I was fortunate to meet my lovely wife during my training, and that was one of the great things that happened to me at Columbia. So as I as I then decided I, I was looking everywhere for jobs, I looked at academic jobs, private practice jobs, and the next time I come back, I'll tell you what it was like. In my job search, now I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up and where I'm going to be. I learned several things from my residency training program, and I just want to just talk about that to begin with. Um, as I said in the previous um, parts of this broadcast, I talked about what it was like to be a medical resident, a surgical resident, and a fellow in surgical critical care. I felt that my training in internal medicine allowed me to really think about patients and their problems in detail. It allowed me to understand their problems and also to listen to patients. Listening to patients is the key in terms of getting key information about what you're going to do for them. My surgical resident taught me how to operationalize a lot of the things I learned, and it really made me more of a complete physician because I think as a surgeon, you need to be both a medical doctor and a, and a surgical doctor, and I've allowed to do that. I took care of the complex problems during my surgical residency. I learned how to be a surgeon at Columbia uh, PNS, or what we called Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, now called the Columbia University Medical Center. It was an outstanding opportunity. Um, I had such a great group of people that I trained with. I learned from them, uh, and they learned from me. I mean, as a junior resident, um, I learned how to be a surgeon, and there's just so many fantastic stories of of things that we did when we were junior residents. It was a time that we allowed a fair amount of independence, and at night there were no surgical attendings really in the hospital. The hospital was run by surgical residents. We relied very heavily on our surgical senior residents to help take us through cases and to make sure that we were safe. And as a chief resident, you basically took uh, junior residents through the case. It was that your attending know what was going on, and if, if there was a problem, you would call your attending. But many times, the attendings were uh, an hour to two hours away. Um, sometimes they were quicker, and they would come and help you, but it really was a quite a maturing experience. This is an experience which uh, current residents and fellows do not get today but it allowed us to mature into mature surgeons so that we were very thoughtful. And, and surgery is not as much a, about the art of operating. We all can operate and do things, but it's really knowing when to operate and when not to operate, making sure you think through the case before you do it, and you basically encounter anything that comes up. You basically need to know how to do it. And I thought that my program director really did an outstanding job of helping us think as surgeons. We had a really great group of people. Uh, there were uh, five of us uh, who trained in general surgery, and we uh, worked closely as a team. We covered one hospital, 
at night, the big hospital, Columbia Presbyterian, but we also covered a small hospital. And as such, we basically ended up uh, doing all kinds of things. So at night, we would cover two hospitals and cover two emergency rooms, and we'd go back and forth as we need to to see the patients. And we had this other thing that was very interesting is that we called it uh, the on-call resident at our second hospital. And we affectionately called this the ghost. And the ghost was someone who could basically be called to operate on someone. Um, I operated on many interesting patients who had problems. Uh, The most interesting case I had was a young woman who basically had had a serious knife wound to her neck and basically... I ran downstairs to intubate her, and as I intubated her, I found that her trachea had basically had come out of her neck, and I was able to intubate her fairly easily, get her up to the operating room, repair injuries with the able help from my surgical attending and the uh, ENT attending, um, who were able to help me get through the, the case. Other cases of uh, people being shot at one hospital, we would be at the other hospital and have to run down, but case after case of things had, were really quite complicated. We trained during the era of the crack epidemic, and it was really quite dangerous to live in New York. Um, there was a men's shelter across the street from Columbia Presbyterian, where we had 8,000 patients there who sometimes would come in and take, we'd take care of them. Otherwise, we had folks who basically would shot who would come into the hospital. Um, it was quite a brutal time in New York at the time, and at that time, we had somewhere like 2,700 murders in New York City. Just in our precinct, the three, four precinct, we had 150 murders, so it was really quite dangerous um, there in that place. In fact, at night we could not really walk around a whole lot because of the amount of drug dealing that was going on. Um, it is much better in New York now, which is really fantastic, but it allowed us to have tremendous experience caring for patients who are injured, and that I think may be into a better surgeon as I uh, finish my training in general surgery. I thought a lot about different types of surgery. I thought about thoracic surgery, doing other additional training, but um, I was gravi- I gravitated to surgical critical care because I was comfortable taking care of sick patients in the ICU. As I looked around for a job, um, I had an interesting thing happen, which I'm going to share with you, uh, which is really an, an, a reason why you never know how you're going to get a job. So I was um, a, I was a fellow, and I was getting ready to take my oral boards. And I decided to move up the exam and take it in Chicago as opposed to taking it uh, where I was out of New York or somewhere in the East Coast. Flying to Chicago, I'm nervous. Like everyone else, I had taken the written boards, and then now it was time to take the oral boards. Oral boards in surgery is one of the most intense experiences that you have as a surgeon. You do three 30-minute rooms, and... So I walked in the room and um, I took the exam, uh, but let me just give you the backstory. So I was looking around all over for jobs uh, in order to uh, look for employment, and it turns out I applied for a job at San Francisco General Hospital, which is where I'm at now. At my old board exam, I walked in and the chair of surgery was giving me the exam. So I was scared. I was nervous. He didn't really know who I was, but I knew who he was. And um, I answered the questions as best as I could, but I was really quite scared and frightened, and I was convinced I failed because I answered all the questions the wrong way, at least I thought so. Found out a couple of days later that I had passed. So I go on, I, I had I had interviewed already um, at uh, San Francisco General, and um, I decided that um, I would pursue a job there. So um after I interviewed uh, at San Francisco General Hospital, um, I turned a job down because the job was not what I wanted. I wanted a job that would offer my wife and I a commitment uh, to training and be a, being a future leader in trauma surgery in the United States. And I didn't get that the first time, so over a period of time, I made multiple phone calls, and I ended up reaching um, Dr. Hailey DeBass, who later became one of my mentors, teachers, and my chair of surgery, and also my dean at UC San Francisco. I called him up, and I said, Dr. DeBass, um, I am the one that you gave the oral boards to in Chicago. And what he told me, though he didn't know who I was, he said, if you were that person who you had, you were the best one the whole time, and you need to come out here and talk to me about your career in surgery. 
I was really a bit flabbergasted with that, but I ended up coming out, and of course, coming out to San Francisco, there was bad weather. We had to change planes, but we got here to San Francisco. I interviewed uh, with him. We spent an hour there, and then I came uh, to have lunch with him and his wife and my wife, and we basically talked about the, the what it would be like to work at UCSF and San Francisco General Hospital. He made an offer, and it was the most generous offer at the time that I had, and I knew that he would at least... Um, helped me through uh, my initial years on the faculty. So I ended up taking a job at San Francisco General. So I packed up and I left um, New York and I came to um, San Francisco to look for my job. And that's the job I took. And I became a clinical instructor, then an assistant and associate, and now full professor of surgery. I've had many interesting things happen during that time. I was quite fortunate because of um, I was able to. Um, win a number of teaching awards. I was the first surgeon to speak at graduation uh, from the class school of medicine. I won numerous teaching awards from the uh, both the residents and the students, and I was endowed chair of surgical education at UC San Francisco for a decade. So it's really been a really excellent and challenging career. So I do several things. I do Trauma surgery, I, I really think that if you could describe what I do, I am a trauma surgeon. So I take care of people who are injured. I'm essentially a doctor of disaster. I am used to care for people who are severely injured. I also do general surgery, and I also do surgical critical care. So I do a number of different things, which really makes my life interesting. I also have some administrative and academic um, endeavors, too. Um, I do some investigation in some educational work I've worked on and also take care of injured patients in the ICU. So I've had a lot of interesting, interesting um, times. I've also been able to travel the world and lecturing. I've been to South America. I've been to Australia. I've been to Japan speaking. I've been all over the United States. And it's really been a wonderful, wonderful uh, time uh, working as an academic trauma surgeon at, at now Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital. We moved into our new building a couple of years ago. That's also been a challenge, and um, it's been interesting training residents uh, to be surgeons, uh, training medical students to be doctors, uh, training fellows to be outstanding trauma doctors, uh, surgical care physicians, and general surgeons, and being a thoughtful uh, doctor overall. So it's really been absolutely uh, outstanding. So many lessons along the way. I'll just begin to sort of say is that no matter what you choose to do, you must be excellent at it. Um, you always have to be excellent. So one of the things that I, I always had a motto with excellence and all, you want to be excellent at what you do. You must be the best possible you can be. Um, every day your patients will challenge you and you will try to be the best. All they want you to do is do 100% all the time. And one thing I didn't talk about is throughout my whole career, I've had a lot of challenges, you know, whether or not it is where I ended up um, in residency, going through two residencies, getting into medical school, uh, in high school, college, all different steps of the way. But what I just want message I want to leave with you is it's not really how you win all the time. It's basically how you deal with adversity so that if you get knocked over, it's really how you get up and how many times you get up. You must get up afterwards. You must shake yourself off and go forward. Going forward, being excited about what you're doing, I really get a chance to do great things every day at my hospital. I can save lives. I can make people better, and I get a chance to stamp out disease and make the world a better place. I've always had the feeling that the reason why I went into surgery is because I wanted to ride in on my white horse and save the day, and I've been able to do that during my career. I basically identify problems, take care of patients, make them better, and I get a chance to do that every day. And I think it is a honor approach to be a physician. It's really an outstanding career, and I think that um, I really had a wonderful time um, doing what I have to do. Now, that being said, it's been a challenge. There are some days that you win, and when you win, it's the highest of the high, and you are just so excited, and it's fantastic, and then sometimes you lose. And that means the patient may die. But what you have to do is you must be able to deal with adversity and adversity and success. 
one of the hardest things I have to do at times is is talk to patients after they've had someone who came in was injured and they die. And talking to them in that quiet room is really a challenge. So one of the most challenging things I do every day is, not every day, but when it happens, is to be kind and compassionate, empathetic when I give um, information to families about the passing of a loved one. Every time I do it, it's difficult. And no matter how old you are and how long you've been doing it, it's hard. As long as it's, it's, you recognize that it is something uh, that, that you must do and you must do it compassionately and you must take care of your patients and you do it in their families, that's important. Think about what it would be like if your shoe was on the other foot. I also treat my patients like my family members. I think about what would I like to do if this was my family member and that's what I've been able to do throughout my career. So I'll just wrap up by saying is that uh, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It's been an exciting time. I'm so happy I've got a chance to talk to you. I want to thank Dr. Dale for uh, giving me the opportunity to spend some time thinking to you, thinking with you about what it's like to train uh, the way I did. I'll just put in a plug. I'm, I was able, I was honored to give the last lecture at the University of California, San Francisco. If you want to hear more about my life, you can watch YouTube and you can see Dr. Andre Campbell, the last lecture at the University of California, San Francisco, and you can hear a little bit more about uh, my life in detail. And uh, thank you very much. You can also follow me on Twitter if you like. I'm TraumaDocSF. Uh, thank you very much, and I appreciate you spending the time listening to me on my reflections on this very exciting and wonderful career that I've had and I continue to have. Looking forward to many, many more years of working and making people better and saving lives and stamping out disease and making the world a better place. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Campbell. That was amazing. And you guys know there's so much to learn from this episode. So much to learn. I mean, I can't, I don't even know where to start, but you know, I'll just highlight two things which I thought were really important. The first one is, you know, he starts off talking about it takes a village and how you need other people in your life to be successful. Again, when you see a guy of his stature who's achieved what he's achieved, you wonder how he got there. Well, he told you how he got there. It takes a village. Surround yourself with the right people. And those right people who have your best interests in mind will help you get there. That's one thing which I see our youth struggling with so much is they don't have that network. Network, network, network. It does take a village. Surround yourselves. And the second thing which I learned from Dr. Campbell is you, you look at his story, just see how he followed his passion. See how he followed his passion. You know, he, he didn't start off on this route to be a trauma surgeon. He went what we call the Israelites journey. He went the, the long way to get there. Right. So, you know, going through internal medicine and all this and then coming to trauma surgery. Follow his passion. He did what he wanted to do. And you can hear when he's talking. You can just hear how excited he is to even do this podcast with us. You can hear that he really loves what he does. So those are, you know, those are two things which I encourage all of us, myself included, to do. Build a network, rely on our village, and follow our passions. And I think if we do those two things, we'll be much better off for it. Now, in a second, you're going to hear this outro music. And after that outro music, we got a bonus section. So Dr. Campbell has all these Campbellisms. He has all these things which he says, which if you train with him, you know these things sound familiar. So just a little bonus section. We're going to throw it on after the music if you want to check it out. It's really some cool, funny stuff, kind of unique stuff to Dr. Campbell. So definitely check it out. All right. Signing off words here. Please subscribe. Share. Black Men and White Coats Conference. Three things I want you guys to remember. Subscribe. Share it. Remember to check out the Black Men and White Coats Teen Summit that's going to be taking place in February. So learn more about that, blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash summit. And if you want a worksheet, blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash worksheets, and we'll get that stuff to you guys. All right. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Look forward to talking to you guys next week. Remember, bonus section after the music, the Campbellisms. Love you guys. See you next time. Oh, yeah. Pre medical students, got any questions? You know where to find me. I'm here for you guys. Premedstar.com. Love you guys. Hello, this is Dr. Campbell, and I'd like to just share with you a couple of things that I've been thinking about as I begin to wrap this up. 
as I prepared my lecture, when I was doing my last lecture, my residents and medical students told me that I sometimes speak in colloquialisms, which are kind of interesting. So what I what they actually call them were Campbellisms. So I thought what I would share with you is a series of expressions which I have used. Some I use currently, use in the past, but they're called Campbellisms. So um, this is Dr. Dre's list. That would be me. A list of Campbellisms. The first one is Big Stinky, Mr. and Mrs. Colon, Kolonsky. These are not my original terms, but it's a reference to the large intestines. I do operative surgery, and I operate on the colon, and therefore it, sometimes I call it that when I operate on it. The next uh, item I want to talk about in terms of cannibalisms is uh, is a, a timeout, which we all do in the operating room. I'll say I'm Dr. Dre, and I'm bringing the pain today. Uh, the next item is we have a NERT, which is a nutritional emergency. So that means that this is someone who is so badly nourished that we need to declare an emergency. Sometimes I'll talk about, the next item is I'll talk about airway breathing and a pineal problem. And that is sometimes a, a joking reference to the fact that sometimes it's hard to stay up at night and work. And then some people are able to do it and some are not. And it is sometimes generational, sometimes not. But it is important that we're able to rise to the occasion and make sure that we talk to where we talk to each other and we end up surviving the long hours that we have as part of our resilience as physicians. We have a holy we have a holy individual, i.e. somebody has a Swiss cheese situation. That means they have multiple holes in their abdominal wall. That's another cannibalism uh, for the road as I as we end this session on talking about interesting things in my life. I've examined a patient and I touched his soul. That's uh, next another cannibalism. We got in and it was terrible. No, it was heinous. Heinous is an expression that I sometimes like to use because it describes exactly how bad the situation is with the patients, either a terrible trauma case, a big operation where I'm taking out a big tumor, or I'm, as I saved somebody's life and it's a quite difficult case. So that's another cannibalism. There's one that I have not used as much more recently, but in the distant past I have, but I thought that I would just share this with you. Hey guys, sorry I went to New York for a minute, but now I'm back. It's a really direct language, a dramatic twist. Only New Yorkers would understand. Those of you who are from New York understand that New Yorkers engage in fairly direct language, sometimes salty language, but we go back and forth and then we go for a beer, wine, or we have a drink afterwards and it's no big deal. But in other parts of the country, it's not so much. So uh, I would not advocate now going to New York, but I have been known in the past to go to New York in terms of making my direct point on patients. Next item is there will be no gaposis epidemic here. That's a defect in the wound. When you're closing somebody up during a laparotomy or midline incision, uh, we try not to make sure there's no gaposis or no uh, no distance between the wounds. Next cannibalism is we have a Humpty Dumpty situation here. That means that the patient is really broken and fallen apart. We're trying to put them back together again. So that's another cannibalism for the road. Next one is we're going to get hurt. Right. This means it's a tough clinical problem. That means that no matter what we do, the patient may die, and we will feel terrible about it, but we'll try to do as best as we can. Another cannibalism is I was trolling around looking for sick people in the ICU, either in the ED, ICU, or OR. I'm known occasionally when, I, when I'm on call to go around at night looking for sick patients to make sure nothing bad is happening. And the nurses will see me at night, and they'll say, what are you doing up? And I said, I'm up looking around looking for someone who's sick or maybe dying or dead and or having significant problems. Next cannibalism is, I'll just say that this is one of my more entertaining ones, and it's uh, now Beyonce, and I'm a big Beyonce fan, as I said earlier, and, and uh, I played the Beyonce a lot in the operating because I think music is an important part of what we do in the operating room. I play jazz, Beyonce, I play hip-hop, rap, and soul, I play all kinds of things in the operating room. So Beyonce and Destiny Channel in 2001 had a song called Bootylicious, but I have the bootyectomy. It is defined as a radical resection of the junk in the trunk. And it's only used in reference for severe necrotizing fasciitis. That means that people have dead tissue and we need to breed or remove it. So sometimes we have to do what's called a bootyectomy or what I call bootyectomy um, in the colloquial sense. This situation is, next one is a situation that's filthy McNasty. That means it smells really bad. And it really is uh, something that's serious. 
And uh, sometimes I have to deal with situations where people have infections or bad infections that smell bad, and you have to deal with that and make sure it's really clear. And my final cannibalism here is that you ha- sometimes we have to get funky. That means we have to operate and we need to get in there and do what we have to do to save the patient life in terms of doing things. So I'll just conclude uh, by just sort of saying several things. The first thing is that um, I talked a lot about family, and maybe I didn't talk enough about my family because it's essential that uh, throughout this that you have a loving family. I've been fortunate to have my wife for many, many years. We're married now over two decades, and two and a half decades has been wonderful. Um, she's been loving and supportive, and I have a lovely son also who's been fantastic. And I've generated a group of friends who have just been fantastic uh, over the years, uh, some I didn't get a chance to talk about, but uh, some who basically have been with me throughout my entire life as I've taken my journey through medicine. It's important that as you go through medicine that you have friends who can share experiences with and family who understand the, the sometimes difficult things you have because it helps you develop resilience as you deal with difficult problems in medicine, surgery, and in your life. Second thing I'll say is that you have to have passion for what you do. Uh, passion means that you really have to love what you do. When I operate on people, I know that I'm getting ready to do something fantastic to help save them, and that's really fantastic you know, for me. I'm really excited about surgery. When I get to operate, that's the best thing possible. I also think about impact of teachers and mentors and others on you, on you and it's important that you, that you do that, uh, that you have mentors, teachers, and sponsors. Uh, sometimes you have to go far and near, but I didn't talk about mentorship much, but being a mentor to others and mentoring, having mentors yourself, I'll say that. And I'll also say no matter how old you are, you need to have someone who can mentor and help you through things because you still are a work in progress no matter how young or old. As a young surgeon, uh, surgeon in career or more senior surgeon, everyone needs help and assistance in doing that, and likewise in other specialties. It's important for uh, you remember that uh, social justice is a big part of what we have done, and I recognize that this Black Man in Medicine hashtag that we started is important, and we need to make sure that there are successful, highly trained, and outstanding Black physicians around the country and around the world who are doing great things and impacting the world. So I talked about friendship. It's important to have friendship in different spheres, and not only having friends in medicine, but having friends outside of medicine, people who disagree with you, it's fine and it's okay. And many times I'll talk to people I don't disagree with. I think one of the greatest things that I had from my experience at Harvard is that I had friends who I didn't agree with, and we would sit and we would debate things and talk about stuff. And even now, there are a lot of people I don't agree with, but I'm fine to talk to them. I learn stuff from them all the time, and that's great. And I'll just say, finally, is that there are cannibalisms, and these are things that I've used and said over the years, and I'm happy that I was able to share that with you. So with that, I'll just wrap up. And this is now uh, the last of my many uh, parts of this. And I just want to thank you again for listening. And um, hopefully you've learned something from me as I relay things that I've learned throughout my journey through medicine in terms of helping you with making the right decision to be a physician because it's an absolutely fantastic profession. Thank you so much.